I watched as the lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. When the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the living, third living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a black horse. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a day's wages, and three quarts of barley for a day's wages, and do not damage the oil and the wine. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to earth as late figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The sky receded like a scroll rolling up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and every slave and every free man hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Amen. But as we consider it now that you would help us to uh, have an insight and an understanding of the world as you see the world, that we might uh, rightly understand our situation and our hope. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I think it's worth asking the question uh, and getting us to think about our world and uh, to uh, think about the question of whether you think the world is getting better and better or is, are things just pretty much staying the same? Or is it getting worse, as if there was a sort of like a golden age uh, in the past? And um, <clears throat> I think that if you uh, think about 
our world, it's true to say that in some ways life uh, does seem to be getting better. I don't know to what extent uh, human lifespan is an indicator of that, but to the extent that it is, during my lifetime, the average uh, life expectancy of a person uh, across the globe has increased by 17 years. Uh, that's just in my lifetime. Uh, in fact, in 1960, when I was born, the average Australian male died before he turned 68. Uh, in 2012, the average is now almost 80. Uh, anyone here over 80? No. Uh, there's a few people in the 9 o'clock service who are uh, pretty aware that they're above average uh, in that respect. And you see, it's a big jump, isn't it? Uh, in what is relatively uh, a short period of time in comparison to world history. So 17, you know, across the globe, 17 full years uh, uh, in only uh, 50 years of, um, in the last 50 years. Um, technology and medicine and the way that we think and the way that we do things globally mean that we can be tempted to think that maybe, just maybe, things are getting better. And in some ways, they are. But then on the other hand, you open up the newspaper and you see that the world is still full of conflict. Uh, in the past century, about 160 million people have died in wars. Uh, there are always wars happening from uh, uh, smaller skirmishes that are technically classified as wars uh, to the, some of the stuff that we see happening in parts of the Middle East even today. I imagine that life expectancy in Syria and Afghanistan and Iraq these days is actually not all that great. And that's our world, isn't it? It's a complex mixture of uh, uh, blessings and of strife. And in some senses that's kind of also mirrored in the Christian life. Um, think about the Christian life. As Christians we experience some great blessings. We experience the blessing of forgiveness, of relationship with God. Uh, we experience the blessing of knowing how to live uh, the way that God has built us to live. And so these are great blessings but there is also strife in the Christian life as well. Uh, we share the same, some of the same joys and difficulties that are common to man, but as we, particularly as we stand up for Christ and as we seek to be godly, then we find ourselves engaged in uh, what, what is called a spiritual warfare. And, and it's a battleground. Uh, it's a daily battleground where we are uh, confronted by uh, the temptation to sin. Uh, we are confronted uh, sometimes by uh, even persecution for the, um, because of the fact that we are Christians. And so, as they say, in the Christian life, we, uh, our struggle is against the world, the flesh and the devil. Now, let me ask you this. Do you expect that you'll come to a point in your Christian life where you'll be able to sit back and relax and say, I've made it, I'm not subject to temptation anymore. 
Not in this life, will you? Uh, not in this life. Uh, in fact, there will be times during uh, this life that uh, we will want to, uh, to cry out to God and to, to, to ask this question, How long, O Lord? How long will I be in this battle zone? How long will I be engaged in this spiritual warfare? And some of the Christians to whom John wrote this letter of Revelation would have felt pretty much like that. Uh, They didn't enjoy some of the freedoms that we enjoy. Uh, For them being a Christian in first century Roman Empire, if you look at try to work out what a modern-day equivalent of that might be. Well, I think I said last week that might be the equivalent of being a Christian in North Korea or being a Christian in Saudi Arabia, being a Christian in a place where you're a very definite minority and where not only the culture but the authorities can be opposed to you as well. How long, O Lord would have been the prayer of the first century Christians. And so John encourages them uh, with this expression of the revelation that he received, the vision that he received from God. If you open up at Revelation, uh, as we saw, uh, was it last week in chapter 5? Last week in chapter 5, that there, there was a scroll which contained... God's view of the world, God's view of life, God's view of reality and that scroll was about to be opened but it could only be opened by someone who was worthy. Remember that? It could only be opened by someone who was worthy. And we see in chapter 5 verse 1 that this scroll was, was, was locked it was closed and it was sealed with seven seals. And so it was necessary to find someone who was worthy to open up each of these seven seals. Now, Revelation, as we've said in the last few weeks, is what they call apocalyptic literature. Uh, and that means that uh, there is an, a lot of symbolism. There are numbers and images in Revelation which are symbolic and are meant to be understood uh, in a symbolic way. And the number seven, the number of these seals, the number seven is symbolic, and it symbolises completeness and and deity. So it's a very important number in uh, apocalyptic literature and indeed in the Bible. Now, we're going to look at uh, what happens when these seven seals are opened over two weeks. Today we're going to look at what happened when the first six of these seals were opened and uh, we're going to break that down further and look firstly at what happened when the first four of those seals were opened which is what we see in chapter 6 verses 1 through to 8 which uh, uh, Anna read to us earlier on if you want to open up your Bibles at that on page 870. And so the opening, uh, as each of these four seals is opened, uh, each seal rep- um, uh, reveals a man on a coloured horse. And so there are four 
uh, riders. There are four horses, coloured horses, and sometimes these are commonly referred to as, as the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Um, let's have a look at them, shall we? Uh, and it's important what colour they were. In verses 1 to 2, the first, when the first scroll, um, first seal is opened, the first horse is coloured white, and white is the symbol of conquest. Uh, the rider, we're told, has a bow and also has a crown. And so it's a picture of, of kingly authority. It's a picture of a king who sets out with his bow on his horse to invade others. Now, first century people would have understood this because they, they lived in lands that had been consolidated by imperial Rome. And when I use the term consolidated, you know, basically invaded and taken over. That's the first horse. The second horse, as the second scroll uh, seal is opened, the second horse is fiery red, which signifies the battles that uh, inevitably follow once the rider on the white horse sets out on his conquest. And so with a large sword, this rider uh, takes peace away from the world. Uh, the black horse in verses 5 to 6, when the third seal is opened, the black horse symbolises uh, what happens when there is a war, and that is the, the shortage of food uh, that is the result of the war. When uh, armies come and they invade, uh, they destroy farms, they destroy vineyards, they destroy economies, and so uh, you get the situation where we're told in verses 5 and 6 where a mere handful of wheat costs a day's wages to purchase. And so there is famine uh, as a result of that. And finally, the fourth seal uh, is opened and uh, is revealed uh, a pale horse or a rider on a, on a pale horse. And this horseman represents the death and the destruction, which is the inevitable result of war. So... Uh, this is very briefly the four horsemen um, that uh, are revealed through the opening of those four seals. Now, how should we understand all of this? Well, the, the four horsemen of the apocalypse has uh, featured rather vividly in uh, teaching and books and uh, even movies uh, with great special effects about the future of our world. And there are many ways, uh, there are many ways in which Christians, godly Christians, godly and biblical Christians have uh, sought to understand uh, the book of Revelation. And uh, it's true to say that there's been a lot of uh, disagreement, but it's, it's godly, often godly disagreement by people who love the Lord Jesus Christ and want to be uh, faithful to the scriptures. And uh, so you get um, different categories of, uh, of thought. And so you've probably heard some of the terms. People talk about premillennialism and amillennialism and postmillennialism. And then within those categories, there's different subcategories. So there's the pre-tribulation, the post-tribulation, and so on and so forth. It's a very complex issue. 
But um, at the risk of oversimplifying it, I, I want to just try to untangle some of that and give you a framework to think about these things in respect to. And one way of simplifying the disagreement is to say that there are three basic ways that people understand revelation. And uh, I'll add to the complexity by uh, suggesting a fourth way uh, to understand revelation. And let me just briefly articulate that. Uh, firstly, there are some who say that revelation is mostly about events of the past, uh, events which happened uh, historically in the first century. Uh, secondly, there are some who say, well, now it's actually about events that happen uh, following on from when John wrote this and throughout history, specific events that you can kind of attach some of this imagery to, specific events uh, which happen in history, including uh, in our own day, and so often that involves trying to link uh, the book of Revelation with current events and to show how uh, certain things in Revelation are being fulfilled uh, in our own day. And thirdly, there are some who would say, well, actually, when you read Revelation, it's, it's all about the future. <laughs> it's not, not about the current day. It's all about something which is a time that will happen in the future. So, broadly speaking, these are three ways of understanding Revelation. I want to suggest to you that the way that we ought to understand Revelation is that it's all of the above. Uh, that there are, there's a certain way in which they're all wrong, a certain way in which they're all right. Uh, I'm not having a bet both ways here. I'm suggesting that there are certain ways in which each of those approaches is correct, but possibly not in the way that the proponents of those views uh, believe that uh, their view is correct. One of the principles in biblical interpretation is that we interpret different parts of the Bible, specific parts of the Bible, in the context of the whole of the Bible and the message of the whole of the Bible. And the interpretative key to the scriptures, to any scripture, uh, is the gospel of the, uh, the death, the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the victory that Christ has won on the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. So the gospel itself is always central to the way that we interpret scripture and uh, it is the interpretative key to understanding scripture, particularly the difficult parts of scripture. And in saying that, <clears throat> therefore... It seems to me that the way that we ought to be reading and understanding Revelation is to say, well, yes, it is about specific events that happened in the first century uh, in the sense that uh, John, uh, what John wrote was immediately understandable and applicable to the Christians of the seven churches of Asia Minor to whom it's written. Uh, secondly, uh, it's also about history and about the present because the, the suffering and the spiritual warfare that those first century Christians were engaged in has been the common experience of Christians right down through the ages. So that a persecuted Christian at any point in history, even today, 
and in the future can read Revelation and be encouraged by what it's teaching about the state of the world, about the spiritual warfare that we're engaged in, about the victory that Christ has won on the cross, about his resurrection and about the future glory. So any Christian at any point in history can derive uh, immediate uh, application and understanding from the book of Revelation. And that, of course, uh, leads to the fact that, thirdly, it is certainly about the future, for it paints a picture of the heavenly reality and the day of judgment, which is the future for those who don't believe and for those who do believe. But to say that the passages such as this one about the four horsemen is only about some events which are going to happen at some future time is to ignore the situation of the churches to whom John wrote and to not understand their context because they knew the conquest and the tyranny waged by imperial Rome. Um, Just think about some of the events that took place. Many of John's readers would have been Christian Jews. Uh, In AD 66, Emperor Nero invaded Galilee and Judea. Uh, The historian Josephus tells us how buildings were demolished, the temple was destroyed, farms and orchards were destroyed. Tens of thousands of men and women and children were put to the sword and died of starvation. Uh, but life was, uh, was worse for Christians, particularly under Emperor Nero, who, remember, he was the guy, you know, there was a big fire in Rome, and he blamed the Christians for starting that fire. Uh, who was it who actually started the fire? It was Nero himself. But he blamed the Christians and they were persecuted because of that. Uh, Add to that the fact that um, uh, initially uh, Christianity was just considered by the Romans to be a denomination of Judaism and uh, they were protected because of the deal that the Jews had done with the Romans. But um, uh, they came to be an illegal religion and... Christians refused to bow the knee and to worship Caesar, as we've talked about. And all of those things together, and the reality was, friends, Christians were dying in the first century, all over the place, because they were Christians. And so these four horsemen of the apocalypse, they understood that. Uh, They felt it. Uh, They were dying. And in verse 9, our Lord Jesus then opens the fifth seal of the scroll. Let me read this one for you, verses 9 to 11. Everyone got that? Verse 9. When he opened the fifth, <coughs> pardon me, the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers 
who were to be killed as they had been, was completed. Now again, this is uh, it's picture language. Uh, it's, it paints a picture of the feelings of martyred Christians. And we see there that they're des- it's described as the souls of the martyred Christians. They're under the altar. Now, why would you have an altar in heaven? Well, you know, there's a lamb that's been slain. <laughs> and these are under the altar. They're covered by the sacrifice that's already been paid by Jesus. And they're crying out for God's justice. It's not... They want to know how long, O Lord, until you judge the inhabitants and avenge our blood. It's not vengeance. It's not revenge. Uh, They want justice. They want it all to stop. And the emotion that they're expressing uh, is a desire for hope. Because when you're in uh, in a terrible situation and you cannot see any end in sight that is when you're in despair but when you know that there is an end point that there is a time of conclusion of this suffering that gives you the hope uh, to persevere to continue uh, suggesting that it's that 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 is what's behind their cry how long O lord and so in Verses 12 through to 17, and sorry, you go back on that. What you see here is that they've cried out for, uh, for how long, O Lord, and then each one of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a bit longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed has been completed. Uh, a white robe symbolising victory. And uh, what it's suggesting, what it's saying here, rather, is that, um, that God has a timetable, God has a plan, God has a purpose, and it will come to fruition. fruition. So wait for that to happen. Uh, and then in verse 12, down to 17, seal number 6 is opened. And it reveals something which we don't see in nature. Uh, it reveals the an angry lamb. Uh, I, I was debating whether to call this sermon the angry lamb or uh, call it the question, who can stand the day of wrath? Because they both <clears throat> sum up the, uh, what, what's happening here in this section Uh, the question of who can stand the day of wrath we'll look at in a moment. But uh, here is a picture of a lamb who is angry. And it's a graphic picture of the wrath of him who sits on the throne and of the lamb. And have a look at the picture. In uh, verse 12 and following, there is a a great earthquake, <clears throat> the, uh, the sun turns black, the moon turns blood red, the stars fall from the earth and the, scro- the sky is rolled up like a scroll and you can imagine the special effects in the futuristic movies 
that could be made out of this. But what this is, is typical biblical language describing Judgment Day. Uh, It's more symbolic than what it is uh, scientific. And uh, it paints a picture of terror which John's readers would have understood very clearly. Uh, The area uh, of Asia Minor, where Revelation, where the seven churches were, is an area where there was a lot of seismic. There is a lot of seismic activity. Earthquakes were very common. In fact, in 17 AD, the city of Ephesus was completely destroyed by an earthquake. It was rebuilt after that. And about 15 years before the Book of Revelation was written, <clears throat> there was a volcano that erupted. <clears throat> what was it called? Mount Mount Vesuvius, right? And <clears throat> there was two cities that were destroyed, one's Pompeii, one's Herculaneum, and uh, John's readers would have been well aware of that. Uh, It was part of their world. And the descriptions from eyewitnesses of when that happened described ash, you know, just falling from the sky and the, the sun just being blackened in the middle of the day and the moon turning blood red and so... And so this is the the language that they understood. Uh, And in the Old Testament, there are passages where judgment is being prophesied against uh, Babylon and Egypt. And this is the same kind of language that's used back in the Old Testament as well. It's picture language. And what John is describing is an event that you don't want to be a part of. You don't want to be there. A terrible day of judgment which will happen in the future, a day when everything changes. See what he says in verse 17? Uh, Verse 16, rather, he says, you know, they call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? And uh, the people that he specifically Uh, talks about the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, uh, those who are oppressing uh, God's people, but he rolls into that every slave and every free man as well. Who can stand the day of the wrath of the one who sits on the throne and of the Lamb? It's a good question, isn't it? Who can stand? Uh, There was a story that came out of the Iraq war of a... Italian journalist had been kidnapped and she'd finally been released and as she was being driven away American soldiers opened fire on her car by mistake and the only thing that stopped her from dying was one of the secret service agents of the the Italian secret service agents jumped in the road pushed her out of the way and absorbed the bullets himself. Now God's wrath is nothing like that friendly fire But chapter 7 tells us that because of Jesus' sacrifice, there are many, many people who will stand on that day of judgment, on that day of God's wrath. And so you see that Revelation is about the future, a future day of judgment. But if you have trusted in Jesus, then you've got no grounds to be fearful of that day of judgment. 
And why? Well, because the lamb was slaughtered for us on the altar. He took the bullet for us. And so in verse 3 of chapter 7, God has stamped a seal on us as well. Um, The Holy Spirit is our seal. Uh, That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to flip over to Ephesians 1 verse 13, this would be a good time to do that. If not, just just listen. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13, uh, Paul writing to the Christians says, in, in, in Ephesus, in one of the towns that's been, that Re- Revelation is written to, and he says, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession. And so the Holy Spirit is a seal that is placed on you if you believe in the gospel, if you trust in Christ's death on your behalf. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And that is the guarantee, that is the deposit that guarantees that you have an inheritance, that you will stand uh, the day of judgment Uh, in in Exodus. God's people were to place, were to, to, to to paint the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their houses. And so that uh, uh, when judgment swept across Egypt, it passed over those uh, who were covered in the blood of the Lamb, like a seal. That's the seal that we have guarantees that we will stand firm on the day of judgment, that we will not be judged by God because the Lamb has already paid the price. Now, how many people were sealed? Well, verse 4, how many people does it say were sealed? 144,000. The Jehovah's Witnesses get very excited about this. Uh, They used to teach that that meant that there were only 144,000 people going to heaven. And that was before their numbers exceeded 144,000. But as soon as they got to 144,001... Uh, then they either had a false sheep amongst them or they had to change their theology. And so they changed their theology to say that there is now 144,000 special people uh, in heaven and there's a two-tiered kind of approach in heaven. And that's the, uh, the danger, of course, uh, in treating the numbers in Revelation as being literal uh, when they are symbolic and uh, Uh, it would seem here that this is symbolic, meaning a great number from all of the tribes of Israel, and it lists the tribes of Israel there. Uh, Although Dan is missing, and uh, there's two sort of sub-tribes that are in there. And this is all of the true Jews. Remember in Revelation that uh, those who are physically Jews 
uh, are uh, described in two categories. In, ch- in chapter 2, verse 9, and chapter 3, verse 9, uh, there are Jews, people who call themselves Jews, but are actually persecuting the, the Christians. And John says they call themselves Jews, but they are actually a synagogue of Satan because they're Jews by physical lineage, but they're not trusting in Christ. In fact, they're opposed to Christ. But there are those within physical Israel uh, who trust and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in verse 9, the image expands uh, to all of the nations. If you have a look at verse 9 and 10, after this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They are wearing white robes and were holding palm trees in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. John's letter was written to suffering Christians of the first century, but it is relevant to Christians of every age. Uh, The souls of the martyrs cried out, How long, O Lord? And God's answer was that they'd have to wait until the full number of Christians who would be killed would be completed. In chapter 6, verse 11. And indeed, throughout world history, the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of the church. Uh, when, When Christians have stood up for Christ, when Christians in the context of persecution or ridicule have have stood firm, have sought to, to stand firm, to name the name of Jesus, to live godly lives and to refute error, when Christians have stood firm, no matter what the cost, what happens to the church when, that, when, when we do that historically? The church... Church grows. The church grows. Uh, because it sorts out the wheat from the chaff, doesn't it? And, uh, and people, uh, pe- people actually see what authentic uh, faith in Christ is all about. And it's the same for us. I mean, the Christian life obviously is the very best life because when you're living the Christian life, you're living the way that God has created you to live. Uh, but it is also a battle zone in which we need to be faithful. Um, Satan wants us to think that sin is satisfying. Satan wants us to think that if we uh, uh, sin against God, if we rebel against God, then somehow that's going to make life more fulfilling, more meaningful for us. And Satan also wants us to think that standing firm for Christ just ain't worth it. <laughs> that the troubles, the difficulties, the ridicule, the person it's just, it's just not worth it. Satan wants us to think that. Uh, but this passage f- finishes up for us with a, with a picture 
of those who have been faithful in the battle zone. We're going to finish off here, but I want to read to you from chapter 7, verses 13 to 17, uh, where one of the elders, John says, one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? And I answered, sir, you know. And he said, ah, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. Tribulation means suffering, by the way. These are the ones who have come out of the difficulties of, the, of, of being a Christian in this life. And they've come through that. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. I don't know about your house, but if we get blood spilt on our clothes, we use bleach to turn it white. You don't take, make something white by using blood. But we have been made white in the blood of the Lamb. We've been purified from our sin because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And we wear white robes that's a symbol of victory, that he's won the victory over the world, the flesh and the devil. And therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will spread his, t his tent over them. And that is a picture of, of protection, of God's fatherly protection of us, of him being our refuge and our safe stronghold. <coughs> This is the assurance that we have that God will never let us down, that we are safely covered by him no matter what the evil one throws at us. And never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat upon them nor any scorching heat for the lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And here we, we have this picture of, of Eden revisited, of the, the perfection of living uh, in God's place as God's people under God's rule. And Eden and the new Jerusalem that we read about in Revelation uh, commonly share the tree of life and the streams of living water. And so, friends, uh, we need to stand firm for Jesus, don't we? Uh, in, our, uh, in our families, in our marriages, uh, in our workplace, in our schools, in our culture, in our church... Uh, because there'll be false teachers that'll infiltrate churches. We need to stand firm for Jesus. And when we do, when we take a stand for true doctrine, uh, for the centrality of the gospel, uh, for godly living, it's going to evoke different reactions from different people. Some will actually hate you for it because they don't actually love God. I'll take it out on you. Um, others will look at that and they'll be very, very attracted to it. People living with a true purpose. People living for something which is worth living for. It's tough sometimes. And sometimes you'll weep.
But you know what? There comes that day when God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. The struggles of the Christian life will come to an end, a glorious end. And the victory that is ours will be plainly revealed and enjoyed. In the meantime, we need to pray. We need to pray that more people would come to understand what God has given us to understand. That more people would turn to Jesus. We need to also pray, uh, as we might pray out, How how long, O Lord? We ought to be praying, Come, Lord Jesus, come. Bring an end to this. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the great victory that Christ has won for us as the uh, lamb who was slain on the cross. Father, we thank you that he is victorious over Satan. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would grant that uh, we would uh, uh, have, have such an understanding of the victory that Christ has won and the sure and certain hope that we have that we would be people who would stand firm for Christ, uh, that we would not uh, deviate to the left or to the right, uh, that we would uphold the gospel at whatever cost to us, and, Father, that we would strive to live in a way that honours and pleases you. Give us uh, strength, Father God, to uh, come through the tribulation Uh, as we uh, set our minds back to what Christ has done for us already and set our minds forward to what is our future and think about the heavenly reality that you are in control. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.